0: I'm recording this while I have a stew of goulash up on the stovetop using my butcher box ground beef. It's one of the dishes that my Eastern European grandmother used to make all the time, so there's a bit of comfort that comes along with this particular meal. And I always enjoy when my butcher box shows up because I know in that box is 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, pork that's raised crepe-free, and always wild-caught seafood. If you're looking to create some recipes from your youth or some comfort food for yourself, you can sign up for ButcherBox today by going to butcherbox.com conspirituality and use code conspirituality at checkout to enjoy your choice of bone and chicken thighs top sirloins or salmon in every box for an entire year. Plus, you'll get $20 off. Again, that's butcherbox.com slash conspirituality and use code conspirituality. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. Hey, everyone. Derek from Conspirituality here, speaking for Matthew and Julian. We all hope you're having a great holiday break, no matter what you celebrate or believe in. We are taking some time this week with our families, as well as doing the final edits on our book, Conspirituality, which is out in June. The pre-order link is in the show notes here, as well as all of our social media links and our Patreon link, where today's episode originated it is the courage to heal part one which was part of our early access series we'll be dropping courage to heal part two on saturday to complete out the year so again thank you for all of your support for your feedback for listening we hope you have a great new year and we'll see you with all new content here on the main feed and on patreon in 2023
2: Welcome to an episode of a Conspirituality Podcast bonus collection, The Swan Song Series, a tour through the paradoxes of Teal Swan, an influencer who embodies the tangled history and whiplash contradictions of our beat. This collection will be accessible first through our Patreon feed, but we will release each episode to the public over time in our regular feed in addition to our Thursday episodes. Topics will revolve around the method, the myth, the impacts and implications of one of the most unsettling conspirituality figures alive. Content warnings always apply for this material. Themes include suicide and child sexual abuse. To our Patreon subscribers, thank you for helping keep our platform ad-free and editorially independent. And to everyone else, thanks for listening, including followers of Teal Swan, we hope this is all useful to you as you consider your relationship to Teal's story and influence. Welcome everybody to Swan Song series number nine, The Courage to Heal, part one. Julian, we're back singing the Swan Song, getting close yeah. to the end here. Uh We have had a lot of appreciative comments on this series, and then one or two uh, saying, I'm getting some teal swan fatigue, which I think is totally understandable. So uh, how are you holding up?
1: I mean, just in general, with everything we cover, it does happen that every four or five months, I just get leveled by this stuff. That definitely happened um, toward the end of last week. It can be emotionally exhausting and mentally preoccupying, but... When I notice that's happening, I, and I realize it, if I rest and change gears for a while, my appetite predictably returns. Uh, I'm I'm really quite proud of what we've done with this series, mapping out the historical, and perhaps cultural and and literary and cinematic features of this time period that gives rise to Teal Swan and other influential figures of her generation. It's like we're in the we're we're exploring the roots of spiritual influencer culture and, and how that sort of turns into conspirituality. So, yeah, I, I would say I'm not sure if uh, if, if someone's re- feeling fatigue with it. I I respect that and I understand it. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm I'm just not sure it's so much about teal swan because we've been we've been excavating so many um, so many of the underlying tunnels.
2: Yeah, and turning now today, we are going to cover the form, the content, and the impact of an extremely influential book in this zone that was first published in 1988. I don't have sales numbers for it. I have a source who wasn't able to track them down as of the time of recording, uh, but I'll post them to the show notes when I get them. I can say that in the Sort of um, you know buzz around the work that uh, people will say that hundreds of thousands of lives have been changed. One of the authors in her preface to the eighth or sorry the fourth edition released in two thousand and eight, she says that this has changed millions of lives, so it it has it has sold in a big way, which it would have to uh, for four editions including a much revised 20th anniversary edition in
1: 2008 you have to wonder um what what the percentages would be on those unknown numbers right so that if it's changing millions of lives what percentage of the people who read it had their lives changed and then what does that translate into does that mean tens of millions of copies have sold oh right supposedly yeah yeah. I maybe unless, these- unless everyone who reads it has their life changed by it. Uh, yes, for good or ill, right? Yeah, as we'll see.
2: As we'll see. So we should say off the top uh, that all of the standard trigger warnings are on high alert for this episode because we'll be talking about some very difficult things uh, because we're reporting on a very difficult book. Now, the authors are Ellen Bass and uh, Laura Davis. Now, uh, The Courage to Heal was not a standalone text. In 1990, Davis also published the Courage to Heal workbook, which provides step-by-step guidance in memory mining and disclosure of experiences of child sexual assault. Both authors were, at the time of publication, creative writing instructors. Both authors still work as creative writing instructors. The basic premise of The Courage to Heal is that memories of childhood abuse, especially child sexual abuse, can be recovered and articulated by survivors who are given the proper space, tools, community, and validation. And the book explores how this can happen and be facilitated within the context of journaling, writing poetry, and writing memoir, and what the therapeutic benefits of full confessional articulation might be. In the words of one reviewer of both books, writing in the uh, American Psychological Association Journal in 1991, quote, As the Bible for many recovering alcoholics is one day at a time, I believe that one or both of these books will become the Bible for
1: recovering child sexual abuse survivors. Perhaps the book already has. Let me just underline this. You're saying The Courage to Heal proposes that creative writing is a reliable method for uncovering repressed child sexual abuse memories. That's, that's big on the face of it. I want to also make sure we clarify here when you said step-by-step guidance in memory mining, that's, that's your phrase. Not, not the, not. It
2: it is, it is.
1: Mining is my phrase. Um, I mean,
2: the, the, the practice or the discipline that emerges in relation to books like this is called recovered memory, right? I want to tread really carefully with this episode because at least two things are disturbingly true at the same time when we're talking about this book. So number one, without a doubt, countless people, mostly women, describe this book as having powerful positive impacts in their lives. They describe finding it at a time in which they were trying to make sense of the shameful and traumatized after-effects of familial abuse. They describe it relieving loneliness, providing validation, and holding out the promise of a community and eventually a society in which the internal and external taboos against speaking the truth of one's condition seem to finally lift. I've got one anonymous reflection from a colleague I'm going to get to at the end of part two where what they say is that, quote, I think this book saved lives, unquote, because it was a lifeline for those who believed they were alone and because it dropped into their lives at a vulnerable time when no other resources were available or even conceivable. And in the case of this colleague, it dropped into their lives at a transitional moment before they were able to access licensed therapy. Now, here's the second thing that's true about this book. Bass and Davis created a doorway between the needed and legitimate psychotherapy of recovery and the stressful and feverish realm of exaggeration that can lead to moral panics. They are writing instructors, let me underline that, not mental health practitioners or forensic psychologists. And if you are looking for the most impactful story or poetry because that's your job as an instructor to help people develop such things, you may find yourself promoting versions of events that reflect your desires more than they reflect reality. And acting out of the rigid ideological assumption that the memories of their students and mentees must be accurate, Bass and Davis fated their book to equalize all stories and relativize all evidence. And the result is the simultaneous promotion of resources that present wildly different standards of integrity, including the braiding together of New Age and Buddhist self-help literature with books like Suffer the Children by Judith Spencer, which is firmly in the category of Michelle Remembers. Unfortunately, when criticized for their inclusion of satanic ritual abuse as a category they were helping people remember truly in detail, they kind of doubled down, but not with any evidence that ritual abuse or satanic ritual abuse was real, but with the insinuation that those who asked for evidence may themselves be attempting to cover up the reality of satanic ritual abuse.
1: Oh wow! Well, this is where you know we see how even with the best of intentions, uh, one can, through a sort of flawed epistemology and identification with you know a, a message that that you're spreading, sort of lean into that telltale cultic and conspiracist style of arguing, right, Matthew? It's it's kind of that Kafka trap where if someone questions the evidence for a core belief that you're promoting, um, then that that's actually evidence that the belief is true and that perhaps the person asking really has, uh, you know, loyalties to sort of keeping the lid on this, keeping the cover up in place, which is really disturbing. And, and wild, you know, I, I had not remembered this, that there's, there's a a legitimizing and a kind of, I don't know, sort of, sort of sharing of some kind of legitimacy or mainstream sense of holistic or integrative mental health by, by aso- being associated with Buddhist texts and and self-help texts. And, you know, that, that whole field where you have people like Jack Cornfield for example, um, becoming quite popular.
2: Well, as we'll see, I don't know if this is in part one or part two, but Jack Kornfield is actually listed as a resource in this book, opposite a page that lists a bunch of satanic panic resources. So things get very, very tangled. The book is almost um, a bookstore in itself in which you can access um, satanic panic materials, and then you can access uh, Pema Chodron.
1: Oh gosh, I mean it's it, it's not a it's not a kind joke to make, but it's a little bit like choose your own adventure, right? Where wherever the wherever the um whatever material is coming up for you in this creative process, we'll hear the different types of of uh, books that might support you.
2: Exactly. Yeah. So between these two realities, so this book has many people who say that it saved their lives. It helped them enormously. And we also have a lot of evidence that it ripped people to shreds uh, because it pushed them into um, assuming the reality of memories that may not have been accurate. We, I think we have something familiar with regard to many of the materials that we've looked at in the Swan Song series. We have an extremely provocative piece of media that can veer in unexpected directions. And with Ellen Bass and uh, Laura Davis, we're also talking about a discipline of self-awareness and self-discovery. We're talking about writing, which like yoga or Buddhism or meditation or wellness practices can be both deeply fulfilling and sufficiently rudderless that the passions it arouses can be harnessed for very different purposes. And in the process, a lot of political and cultural divisions can get scrambled. For instance, the entire vibe given off by Bass and Davis is progressive, urban, feminist, intersectional, but also a little aspirational middle class when you really get into Bass's poetry sites or Davis's Tuscany writing retreats. Both authors are lesbian. Uh, They have both clearly poured themselves into the project of platforming the voices of women. And then we have to ask what happens when some of those voices become tape loop memes for a deeply reactionary movement soaked in Catholic revanchism. Like what happens when very good intentions help to fuel a moral panic? So that's a little bit of an opening framework and a couple of tough tough questions that we have ahead of us. Um, any thoughts, Julian? Before we go ahead?
1: Yeah, I mean, as you say, historically we're we're in this strange period during which recovered memories and hypnotherapy, multiple personalities, alien abductions, satanic ritual abuse these these are all kind of swirling in a in a an odd melange of like pop psychology and, and, you know, horror movie themes and, uh, the willingness that a lot of people have to, to believe that that there are supernatural explanations for certain things or that, you know, the mind is really much stranger than we can imagine. And so this, you know, you have Sybil with her multiple personalities being, being a huge, um, a huge, uh, having a huge impact culturally. um, and these things then gaining gaining a foothold in mainstream psychology. These these uh, claims about what's going on, and in federal law enforcement, as we've seen. So I'm wondering here if if there's like a bleeding over from Lawrence Pazder's monetizing of uh, his quote unquote therapy with Michelle for Michelle remembers Michelle Smith. Uh, he he was at the time sometimes with his new wife and as we've covered, former terrorized patient by his side, making TV appearances, giving professional workshops. Uh, there, there's a, there's a sort of crossing over into, it's, it's related to what we see now, right? Where if you get a certain media profile, then there's a realization that, oh, this opens the door for me to now perhaps give public workshops and trainings and take people on retreats. And, and how can I sort of Uh, synthesize that with, with, so there's professional trainings and then there's the like unregulated realm that we might dip into.
2: And also we can say that the potential market for trauma recovery, especially from familial abuse, has got to be much larger than the aspirational market for creative writing. Oh
1: yeah, absolutely. So Courage to Heal certainly is a guidebook into how questionable self-help psychotherapy seems to leak and then flood into civilian public settings. And then, you know, in some cases we would imagine and we might we might find in our, our uh, stories that we'll look at in a moment, the kind of out-to-see, at-home application, you know, do try this at home and, and then you're just on your own with whatever comes up. It's not a huge leap to see people like Teal Swan becoming the next digital avatar for the, the phase that would come of this unqualified, alternative, heroic excavation of fantastical horrors after you've clicked on a, on a YouTube uh, thumbnail, right? Now, of course, none of this is to say that a good percentage of the readership of Courage to Heal were not actual abuse survivors.
2: Absolutely.
1: But rather, what I'm saying is that this was likely quite dangerous for them as well. And the sincerity of the authors, you know, doesn't really change those those potential outcomes.
2: Yeah, quite dangerous for them in terms of perhaps encouraging the potential of of um, premature confrontation or uh, a concretization of of hunches that seem to lead to memories. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it it's a situation that can really set people up, as we'll see, for making quite strong claims about things that are actually quite difficult to understand. And then if you stand by those claims as you must, if you believe them to be true, uh, the consequences are enormous. So, yeah, uh, I have two more notes before we we really get rolling. And uh, the first is that, you know, this is one of a number of books that is at the center of the controversy over false memory syndrome. And that phrase, that concept is incredibly complex, uh, all the more so because you can't really understand false memory syndrome unless you understand the the tragic interpersonal dynamics at play in the phenomenon's first family, uh, the frades. And I'm going to include a link to the best investigative piece on that from Katie Heaney, uh, who's writing in The Cut, um, about how uh, the False Memory Syndrome uh, Foundation, actually, or one of the main organizations that begins to study this as a phenomenon, uh, comes out of the Uh, family accusation that uh, psychologist Jennifer Freed makes. So uh, I would say it's beyond our scope to litigate the neurology of memory. So I I want to leave the reality factor of memories to the side and instead look at the broad strokes of uh, the plausible uh, or common child sexual abuse and the implausible uh, satanic ritual abuse. I think it's enough to say two things, um, that the consensus on memory is that it's just not as robust as we imagine. It's very hard to be accurate when it comes to memory. And secondly, it's very easy for bad actors to use the vulnerabilities of memory to invalidate entire experiences, especially when retelling stories in high-stress environments like court. So I'm not into making declarations about whether Bass and Davis and their subjects are remembering things clearly what I mainly want to do is examine how they make their case with what arguments and evidence and how those details connect with our broader themes. And secondly, most importantly, I want to be clear, you've already mentioned it, uh, Julian, that nothing in this episode or our exploration of this text is meant to question or minimize the reality, severity, and rates of child abuse and child sexual abuse. Uh, The numbers as we have them are real, they speak to the urgent necessity for transparent, robust education in sexuality and consent, as well as the dismantling of reporting and legal obstacles that obscure and maintain the reality on the ground, as in the morbid gap between reports of sexual assault and rape and eventual convictions. Now, I have some background in activist reporting on these matters through my pieces on sex abusers in yoga cults. So uh, I'm not taking some kind of reactionary turn here. (laughs) I'm not questioning the axiom of believe women, which statistically is the prudent thing to do when it comes to the self-reporting on assault. But I am looking at what in particular gets believed and why, and how misguided beliefs can actually harm the projects of gender equality and safety because as our uh, guest Regan Williams uh, on episode 12 told us the double victims of moral panics are the very people they are meant to help you know he she described how the children that she worked with often coming from abuse backgrounds were actually galvanized uh, they were inspired by QAnon in the summer of 2020 And we know that the Save the Children movement diverted resources and attention away from legit child welfare organizations. We also know that QAnon-inspired violence has killed children under the guise of saving them from something. And we know that Teal Swan was very likely abused by a man who she says was prominent in two Utah satanic cults. And not the fact that she was abused, but that he was a cult member has given her loads of capital as a pseudotherapist when the truth is something more mundane and therefore disturbing that the guy was just a friend of the family. So, that's enough preamble. Um Julian, I think we can start with you being somewhat of a primary source uh that we can, you know, question here because as you related in the first episode of this series, the courage to heal was a semi-required text in the YTT that you did with Anna Forest. So, can we start there?
1: Yeah, I mean, this was all so long ago. We're talking about 1994 through 1998 when I was really getting deeply involved in that community and taking that training. Um, there were so many books. There were actually it was. It was one of the first trainings that she had done. And so we had these massive binders that had photocopied, you know, tw- between 10 and 30 pages from different books all together in this big, fat, thick binder. Uh, part of the culture, as I've touched on before, was that Anna Forrest held at the time this belief that she would talk about openly that Forrest Yoga Circle attracted people and this would mostly be women with sexual abuse histories even if they did not know that that was why they were walking through the door and and therefore that her workshops and her trainings were a way of uncovering and healing these memories through the body so as to become spiritual warriors who then could help others is sort of the narrative that that leads into teacher training and i and i think a sincerely held one based on this faulty premise that um that these these memories are buried, they're repressed, you can access them through X X Y or Z process, and that far, far more people than anyone could ever imagine actually have these deep repressed memories and that was certainly something I was uh, I believed in at that time as a result of being in that community. Um, there, there were several authors in this general field that we started to map out who did come and give workshops. Maybe not several, but a few. Uh, I can't remember who they are because I didn't really know them at that time. I know that Bass and Davis did not. Oddly, something I, I, I just remembered, speaking of memory, is that Anna would also talk sometimes about having altars which was just so far out to me that I didn't really take it seriously. And it just went over my head, but now I'm, I'm remembering that. And she actually had someone she was dating for a while who there was talk of him having these alters, which are, which is what it, within that community, people would refer to their multiple personalities. Um, so, so there's overlap here with this, this notion too, that the, the traumatic memories you're recovering, can be held by different aspects of self that that have split off and in certain states you can speak as that self and maybe your body language changes your voice changes and you have access to memories that your everyday self would not have
2: and your disciplines in the yoga studio or in breath work or in body work or something like that might give you different types of access to different altars that's part of the that's part of the idea yeah
1: yeah, I mean, Anna, Anna didn't employ breathwork or bodywork techniques, but, but yeah, uh, maybe a Native American ceremony of, of the sort that she that she practiced, which I don't think she really, um, she really facilitated. There was a sense she had of being a student in that domain. Um, courage to Heal was definitely in the mix. I, I wouldn't say it was a required text for the training, but I did have a copy of the workbook myself. Uh, it was a, a text that was talked about within the, within the community, a very small, tight knit community. I do remember writing responses in the designated areas of the book in, in pen, you know, it had little blank squares where you could, you could, uh, write your answers to the exercises. And look, the thing about all of this for me, I mean, there's two things. One you were, you were talking about it earlier, uh, the dangers, right? Uh, you were saying coming too soon to some kind of conclusion, uh, in terms of what, what you think a a memory might mean and, and, confronting family members. Certainly I did both of those things, but even, even more than that is the, the hell that I remember being thrust into where there, there's something about this kind of epistemology that, that creates, it's, it's very destabilizing. What is real? What really happened? What's the true story about my family? What's the true story about my life? Is my is my doubt that this is really true just my denial and my resistance? Is the thing that's going to help me to be to really lean into this and believe it fully and talk to other people who reinforce that? When, when a therapist says, hmm, maybe this didn't really happen, well, you know, does that mean this is the wrong therapist? So, It's it's just such um, murky is like a massive understatement for for what happens in that territory, at, at least in my experience, and from talking to other people as well. And then this was also really complicated for me by the fact that child sexual abuse does happen, and there were people I was very close with who... Remembered actual. I mean, they'd never forgotten. They had actual right. Banal, they'd never yeah. <laughs> yeah everyday stories of like terrible incestuous damaging things that happened in their families. And so I was, I was young and I was very you know raw and open and and impacted by those stories as well. And the empathy I felt uh, for those uh, th- they were women in this case. So yeah, it's it's such tangled territory.
2: You know the co-optation of doubt, uh, the amplification of doubt that you're describing, being tortured by. Um, we're gonna we're gonna see a lot of that as we quote from the book. So I'll warn you when that comes up because it uh, it it might be very disturbing uh, for you to see that play out because it's a huge factor in how this book rolls. Um, so. Let's just take a look at just how diverse the reception to this book has been. I've got here the very first two reviews on Goodreads. Um, the first one is is the positive review. The second one is the standard critical review. The first one, uh, it also will serve as a reasonable outline of the text. So you all know, you know, what, what it basically contains. And I would say that it represents the
1: mainstream positive reception. Julian, you want to read that? The courage to heal is an incredible book in its own way. It focuses on women survivors of child sexual abuse. What it does first of all is give these survivors a voice. Without falling into the trap of abstract academic language, it also is full of ways that can help healing. In the chapters, the authors give information and suggestions through the different stages from trauma to healing. Part one, taking stock, taking care, deals primarily with recognizing the damage and using survivor skills to make it through the day. In part two of the book, you find detailed information about the different stages of the healing process. Part 3, called Changing Patterns, is all about building the survivor back up into a much more complete woman who might experience the whole emotional spectrum and be able to live a better life again. In Part 4, you can find information for supporters. Part 5 tells the stories of survivors. The last sections include poetry and a vast number of bibliographical entries covering books, videos, online resources, and organizations. What makes this book so incredible is the vast amount of information combined with the tragic stories of survivors of child sexual abuse. Whether you're looking for a self-assessment, advice on how to talk and how not to talk to a traumatized girl or woman, advice on healing, advice for family members and those willing to support survivors, or something else, you'll probably find something to work with in The Courage to Heal. The topic of child sexual abuse is shocking, and the authors Ellen Bass and Laura Davis managed to express support and be real about the topic without sugarcoating any of what is happening. Survivors sooner or later need a clear language to help them how to tackle trauma. It's in the text. And at the same time, they need validation and support. Bass and Davis manage both. Thank you for this book.
2: The very next review gives the common criticisms. It says, This book is notorious for having helped to launch the recovered memory therapy craze, which played into the spate of alleged incidents of satanic ritual abuse of the late 80s and early 90s. Neither author has credentials or expertise relevant to psychology, therapy, or sexual abuse. The book was not based on any solid experimental evidence or psychological studies. Some of the case studies included have been discredited, such as the one taken from Michelle Remembers. Memory psychologists, such as Elizabeth F. Loftus and Carol Tavris, have refuted the notion of repressed memories. Though memories may be recovered, there is no special mechanism that keeps them repressed or any way of determining their validity without corroborating evidence." Uh, RMT, Recovered Memory Therapy, is currently considered patent quackery in the psychological disciplines. This book has
1: caused irreparable damage to many people's lives. You know, I just, just hearing some of those criticisms, on the one, one hand, it really makes me realize, like, this is not that far afield from Freud, you know, this is this is this is in the lineage of the Freudian notion that there is a deep unconscious, in which repressed uh, memories and emotions that we don't know how to deal with are stored, because they tell us a story about our family that we don't want to accept. And at the heart of that story are these complexes, the the edipal and and Electra complexes that he describes, that are really the source of all human neuroses. Um, and and it just strikes me that even when we get into Young, there's this there's this mysteriousness about the idea of the unconscious as being, you know, it's, it's almost has a, a supernatural quality where it's like, you can't, can't really ever say anything about it. All things could be true in the unconscious. Um, whatever comes up through your dreams or your active imagination or your writing exercises or your, your experiential therapeutic process has to be taken seriously. And as you said earlier, it's all sort of on a on a relativist flatland of equal plausibility.
2: You know, seeing these two reviews one after another also gave me this thought. I didn't put it into our notes, so I'm just sort of um, off script here a little bit, but I was thinking that there seems to be a category of book in the landscape that we, that we study that is particularly prone to echo chambering. Um, because I don't understand, it's actually quite shocking that such a popular book can have night and day reviews, one and two, on Goodreads. And what it says to me, and and the thing is, is that I, I don't have the dates for those reviews, but that night and day response to this book was in evidence from the beginning the backlash to this text from the actually trained psychological community was immediate. Uh, And so was praise for the book. And so I'm wondering what it is about that particular piece of media that can survive such choppy waters, you know? Like I'm thinking about how... um, you know, uh, is it Jared Diamond whose books, vast historical books like Guns, Germs, and Steel and stuff like that, they've they've gone out of fashion. I think they've been, uh, I think they've been criticized from a number of different angles, but people will still be enthusiastic about a book like that or books like that, and yet it will kind of fall into history, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, in the midst of criticism that. Receives it into its appropriate landscape. But books like this seem to be able to carve out their own media um, domain. Uh, they seem to erect their own kind of walls um, of interpretation and praise and validation that. You know, And as we see how Bass and Davis respond to the criticism, uh, we'll see a little bit from the author's perspective how that happens. But it reminds me of Light on Yoga by BKS Iyengar, which goes through umpteen editions while making wild medical claims about the values of certain postures. And to this day, I believe the latest edition of Light on Yoga still does not feature a medical disclaimer on the front page of the book because the publishers maybe are saying like, what the fuck? Who like who cares? Uh, we don't need to really own up to the fact that he's making medical claims on every page, because the popularity of the book uh, is established. It's found its audience, and its audience doesn't actually have to be warned off of pseudoscience because they've already made a choice. And so, do you know what I'm saying? Like, oh it, yeah, you're,
1: you're hitting something so important here.
2: Yeah, I, I, I don't. We ha- we need a name for pieces of media like this that are that are. They almost come into the world with a protective uh, shield around mm-hmm, them. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that then grows to encapsulate it, their reading audience, uh, and that shield is very very difficult to to penetrate. So
1: yeah, yeah. Well, the two things. I mean, one is that it's it's intensely polarizing, and in a way, it sort of prefigures where we're at in the world right now and why this podcast exists. Right? Is that if if a set of claims is polarizing enough that it it evokes intense loyalty and excitement and investment from people who get hooked by it, and that, that the intensity of that belief in it is it, it crosses some kind of threshold where no matter what the criticisms are from people who have a different perspective on it, they won't get through. It's very different than you know, then a book where where people, you know, like like we were just reading uh, The Dawn of Everything. Right. And we got very excited about it. And then there were several different scholars who came out. Like with a book like that, scholars come out and they make an argument. They're like, well, you know, it's, this perspective may be slightly skewed. And some of these facts are, are maybe being being fashioned into an argument through some cherry picking. And so we're not entirely sure that you should be as excited about this book as you are. And that there's that that conversation, even though there may be strongly held beliefs, the content doesn't have this this urgency about it it doesn't have the the um, messianic quality it doesn't have the promises of intense transformation it doesn't have the deep it doesn't capture the kind of emotional mythic imagination in the same way that um, you know intense conspiracy theories intense religious beliefs and phenomena like this might do
2: yeah um- I think that that's a r that the David Graeber Wingro book is a really good example, that it enters there's a big splash upon publication. Uh, it stimulates a lot of conversation, and it stimulates reasonable responses from equally intelligent uh, researchers who want to ask them to hedge or who who question mm-hmm. some premises. And the buzz kind of settles into the constructiveness of ongoing discourse and everybody realizes no they didn't solve the problems of the world with this book uh they didn't c- come to some sort of final answer but i'll tell you the the author that that is putting out and this is why i think i'm describing maybe simply pieces of media that are artifacts of the bodies of charismatics they're like um they're like uh amulets or they're uh
1: relics actually yeah fetishes i think is also the term yeah
2: yeah, so so 12 Rules for Life by Jordan Peterson is exactly this type of book where everybody who loves it will not be exposed to its criticisms somehow. It will remain a, a sort of parasocial, charismatic experience, communal experience that they have with the ghostly body of Jordan Peterson.
1: Mm, yeah, that's well said. The thing that I that I left out in what I was just saying is that what ends up happening, and, and and you don't see this as much in, in terms of academic work or work that is grounded in, in something more methodological. What happens is that the passion of the people who are in a conversion experience with this new piece of media, and this is the case with Teal Swan as well. Totally. That's that's the, the charismatic conversion experience means that then any criticism no matter how soundly reasoned. And in fact, the more soundly reasoned it is, the more it sounds the alarm of like, oh my God, this actually could be incredibly toxic and dangerous for people. The more the retort, just like you you noted earlier, is you're only saying that because you want to cover up the truth. You are, and, 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 there's a piece of this as well that has to do with the the flawed epistemology that creeps in when you start making claims that are that are unfalsifiable right which is that you're just a scientific materialist. You you just believe life has no purpose. You, you, you refuse to believe that uh, childhood sexual abuse happens because you're in denial. You refuse to believe the claims that Teal Swan is making about channeling aliens or having all of these abilities because you're just, you're actually, if you would do some work on yourself and get past how defended you are around being open to your intuition, then you'd see that we've really awakened. It's that dynamic that's only present with certain subject matter.
2: I'm really glad that you brought up the power of the conversion experience because I think that is so formational to people's identity in relation to particular pieces of media. We see it in spirituality uh, texts. I think that we see it in Courage to Heal that it becomes uh, uh, the, the book itself is an object beyond discourse of literature it's not you know is this thing to be evaluated against you know common forms of evidence or you know should we ask for corroboration for these stories or if they put a terrible statistic into the first edition and then they just disappear it from subsequent editions should they issue a correction like all of those questions of um you know, journalistic and editorial integrity. They really are in a different category of experience. To you know, did this change your life one
1: glorious but also devastating Tuesday afternoon? Yeah, and then it it, it then brings up the question. Okay, so the publishers you were talking about um, light on yoga as well. Is it? And we, we can't know for sure. But sometimes you have to imagine the publishers are going. You know we're not really sure about all of this, but it's selling a lot of books. So we're just going to, we're just going to roll with it. And I think in some cases, because publishing is, can have such a niche quality about it. Publishers are probably also to some extent caught up in the conversion process of, of the charismatic figure or material. And, and so then, then you just cross over into this territory. and, And, and again, it relates to what we're dealing with in the world right now, where when you talk about misinformation, you talk about pseudoscience on social media in relation to say anti-vax claims, it doesn't matter because the retort is, well, you're just, you know, you're just a shill for big pharma. Doesn't matter what counter evidence you No, I don't have to correct any of my previous misstatements on, you know, what the the dangers of vaccines, because I've entered into this other reality. I've been converted into believing that any evidence to the contrary is just a conspiracy.
2: You know, I wanted to corroborate the Goodreads reviews with feedback from our contemporary listeners so I reached out to our social feeds to ask for anecdotes from people who found the book impactful so I'll just read the first one Uh, and we're keeping everything anonymous uh, and thank you everybody who wrote in Uh, so I remember reading courage to heal from back in the late 90s early aughts. I interned at a women's shelter around that time, and abuse and sexualized violence was a topic in feminist circles. I don't remember details of the book, but it was one of the staples. I know I also recommended it. It's funny to realize now how little I remember. I probably still have it in a bookshelf somewhere. I continued to volunteer in peer trauma support later on, around the mid-aughts, Courage to Heal recommendations were replaced with recommendations for trauma and recovery by Judith Herman, and I remember that the latter made more sense to me, it felt more grounded and matter-of-fact-y. But Courage to Heal opened a space for a lot of conversations here and helped women support one another through dealing with trauma, one-on-one conversation, but also in larger groups. I also remember that it resulted in a bunch of artwork being made.
1: So, uh, here's another one. I have read Courage to Heal at least twice at various stages of healing from my own child sexual abuse. I know it's contentious, but when I was 12 and trying to figure out what the fuck had happened to me, that was the book at the local library, thank you, public library system, that named my experience for me. I idolized that book, and and I I say it that way because there's emphasis placed by two stars on either side of that word. I idolized that book when I was a teenager, because I recognized that my life was really hard, capital R, capital H, everyone around me told me that I was a liar, making it up and that false memories are not real. Even when I had the scars on my body and now I've had two surgeries to repair what happened to me because children are small and violence can affect future growth. That's awful. That book honored my desperate isolation. It is also the reason I became obsessed with the whole psychology of MKUltra, the satanic panic, and such classic anti-Semitism as Blood Libel and the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. I discovered Madame Blavatsky, Alistair Crowley, and their influence. I'm obviously still just as fascinated. I reread The Courage to Heal in my twenties. It's one of two influences that encouraged me to go to therapy. I also had sort of outgrown it, and it didn't hit home the same way for me as it had a decade earlier. Now I'm in my thirties and I'm reading it again. I want to get through it before I hear this upcoming episode. I'm finding that it feels a bit dated, but it also feels good for me to revisit because it left such an impact on my younger self. It feels like a step forward or a recognition of how far I've come.
2: I just want to reiterate, uh, thank you to, uh, those of you who wrote in. It's fascinating to uh, hear these thoughts. Okay, here's the next one. Courage to Heal is still in our cellar, where I move books that will eventually be given away, but I haven't yet because I'm not sure I want it back out in the world. It was given to me synchronistically at a vulnerable time when I was coming to terms with my own childhood abuse. Spotty memories, self-doubt, sexuality confusion and overwhelming shame shadowed my days but the book provided no relief not like the validation i felt with judith herman or bessel van der kolk i found it unboundaried and voyeuristic at least that's the impression i'm left with a decade later the original trauma porn if you will graphically detailing stories of abuse and what is that I see it so often within healing circles, something about the provocation and power that comes with sharing our most shameful, especially sexually charged secrets, and then pole dancing on social media to reclaim it all. I was also left with the aftertaste of seething hatred for men
1: who are more often than not the abusers. Here's another courage to heal. It was recommended to me by my therapist, I was abused by my teacher in 10th grade, which lasted for a semester. The incident started to give me sexual problems while in a good committed relationship. I found it helpful in understanding my feeling and thoughts in my life. I was surprised that the book could be problematic. The workbook and pounding rocks into rough gravel to patch my dirt driveway got a great driveway out of it. Uh,
2: another listener. Another listener. Licensed psychotherapist here, I've used this book in helping clients work through their sexual abuse histories. It is slow, difficult work, and so many survivors struggle with devastating feelings of shame, humiliation, self-loathing. In particular, the anecdotal vignettes written by other survivors seem to be the most useful as shame is so isolating. For some, the existence of feelings and experiences people are unwilling to even allow themselves to acknowledge. Such as the way grooming makes people feel special and wanted. These are difficult things to admit because the fear that somehow the abuse was invited or that they liked it. Recovering from Sexual Abuse is painful, arduous work. This book had been a good support for me and my clients. I had no idea it has this other side— And I have to tell you all, I'm a little afraid to hear what you're going to tell us about it, but I'll listen. Again, uh, thank you. Yeah. Okay. So let's take a look at the text proper. Um, Bass and Davis start with some opening statements. So uh, here's how Ellen Bass opens. I first heard that children were being abused in 1974 when a young woman in my creative writing workshop pulled a crumpled half sheet of paper out of her jeans pocket. Her writing was so vague, so tentative, that I wasn't sure what she was trying to say, but I sensed that it was important. Gently, I encouraged her to write more. Slowly, she revealed her story, in pieces, on bits of paper. She shared the pain of her father's assaults, and I listened." Shortly afterward, another woman told me her story, and then another, and another. There were no groups for survivors of child sexual abuse then. The word survivor was not yet in our vocabulary, but as they sensed that I could understand their stories, more and more women shared them with me. The psychologist Carl Rogers once said that when he worked through an issue in his life, it was as if telegrams were sent to his clients informing them that they could now bring that subject to therapy. Once I became aware of child sexual abuse, it was as if women knew that I was safe to talk to. Okay, so I have a couple of notes here. First of all, It's a little bit of a weird opening line. She writes, I first heard that children were abused in 1974. Now, Bass is born in 1947. So as of now, she's around 75 years old. But in 1974, she would have been 27. So first of all, 27 is very young to be running a writing workshop, in my
1: opinion, as somebody who has been to a lot of writing workshops. I mean it was back then but in influencer culture today uh, you could right. be 22 right you could yeah
2: so now she's saying she did not know that children were being abused she was she, she she before this and so is this is this really a gap like she just wasn't exposed to the fact that this happens in the world is it an exaggeration? Um, I mean, is she trying to make the point that, like the rest of the culture, she was sheltered from this sordid fact and that she had a kind of transformative shift? It seems implausible that you'd be 27 years old in 1974 and you you would not have heard of child sexual abuse. So that just well, stands out for me.
1: Yeah, I agree. It's an odd sentence. And if true, yeah. um, it suggests uh, someone who is profoundly... Uh, psychologically incurious, up to that point in their lives, perhaps. Yeah, right. I mean, I mean, to to have, to have completely like, oh, I'd never even heard of that, or or thought about that, or had conversations about that.
2: Yeah, that and that. I'm writing a writer's workshop, and I hadn't heard of Freud. Yeah, uh, I was right I was writing poetry, and I hadn't. I mean, she doesn't say what she was familiar with, but I mean, like. Basic Greek mythology is going to give you is going to give you sexual abuse and incest stories.
1: Well, yeah. And if you're if you're guiding people in groups into writing very personal stories. It seems like you wouldn't have to do that for too long before a story popped up that had some of this content for sure.
2: Now I want to turn, I think this is a very small section and we're going through a very small with a very fine comb here, but I think it's really important because they both to their credit, they lay their cards on their table on the table with their openings. Um, And I want to focus on the, on the comment about Carl Rogers. It's quite strange because she is not identifying as a child sexual abuse survivor. Uh, Rogers, what Rogers says is, um, or at least what she quotes him as saying, because she doesn't give a citation, she says that he says that when he worked through an issue in his life, it was as if telegrams were sent to his clients informing him that they could now bring that subject to therapy. But she wasn't working through this issue in her life. She was just hearing about it from other people. And so there's some real merging going on here with the subject matter. Uh, she's identifying as it. she's by, through this analogy, she's identifying it as being part of her own sort of background. And I understand that from the perspective of creative writing, that's like really, really uh, uh, good skill to have, to be able to merge with your subject matter. But it's exactly the wrong thing that you want to be doing, or the the, the thing that you don't want to be unaware of if we're talking about a therapeutic context
1: well it, and it's also an, an almost exact echo of what i described with forest yoga circle this is a place this is a beacon that draws in people who have sexual abuse histories even if they don't realize it and don't realize that's why they're coming here for help with that there's a magical thinking here for well there's the blurring of the line between you know just because i've read carl rogers you know now suddenly i i have i i Maybe like him, I'm in a, in a therapeutic role, right? Um, but then there's also this magical thinking that says once once she's become aware of the issue, because in Roger's case, he's saying once he's worked through the issue himself, right? Then magically, and and I get this, like like I understand. There's a metaphor here that that maybe explains some experience that people have in their lives, but nonetheless, it's still magical thinking that somehow there's a message that goes out in through the through the. Um, Universe uh, on on the radio waves that then tells other people, oh yeah, you can you can come in um, if you have this issue because this person can handle it. But she's as you're saying, she's not claiming she's worked through the issue. Just that once she's become familiar with it, then suddenly it's everywhere.
2: She's a magnet, right?
1: Yeah, and that's actually more of a description of motivated reasoning and priming and and um, uh, oh, what's it called? Uh, Confirmation bias, right? Then. Than anything else.
2: Now, she goes on to describe in this introduction uh, that she pivoted uh, her writing workshop work uh, to form a group that did work under the title, I Never Told Anyone. She also says that her training, she admits that she's not a licensed uh, counselor or psychotherapist, but she does say that she has training. Uh, as a counselor that has come th- simply through practice, but then she also says that she's trained with other therapists that she respects. She doesn't give details there. Then there's this quote quote, "But none of what is presented here is based on psychological theories. The process described, the suggestions, the exercises, the analysis, the conclusions all come from the experiences of survivors." Which actually isn't true because she herself is not a child sexual abuse survivor. She set up a workshop, so... Unless she's completely democratic, she's letting the participants of the workshop actually come up with the exercises mm, mm, and the suggestions. That's right. that's then right. actually, that's that statement is false. It's just false. Yes. It, it didn't come from the experiences of the survivors.
1: Yeah, and it puts her in some sort of uh, transparent leadership role where where she's just she's just perfectly kind of transcribing and channeling what's happening with with these people, and it also sets up the the, the central fallacy that's so common in, in the circles that we've moved in, which is that there's this. There's this gap between intellectual, in this case, psychological theories, and then the actual experience of being on the ground dealing with the real stuff in a way that people, you know, those ivory tower academics could never really understand because we're kind of doing the real work and we're, we're discovering the real truths. She ends
2: on a metaphysical note that uh, I think flags at something that we'll get to in part two that I find probably most disturbing, more disturbing than anything else in this book. And this is the um, blurring of the line between therapeutic intention and creative aspiration. This is what she says, quote, I want to see us, uh, through this process, all become whole and not stop there. As we become capable of nurturing ourselves and living rich personal lives, we are enabled to act creatively in the world so that life can continue. The eucalyptus trees, the narcissus, the sunfish, the squirrels, seals, hummingbirds, our own children, unquote. Wow. So that she's is, not running. She's not running. She's it's not a creative writing class, Julian. Mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. not just that she's helping people uh, excavate their memories of child sexual abuse. It's that once all of that has happened, mm-hmm. the world can be saved, mm-hmm. including all of the sort of thousand points of light that she mm-hmm. sees around her in the natural world. Mm-hmm. Like, in fact, the implication is that without this world without this
1: work the world is dying yeah yeah the world can be restored somehow the world of nature as she describes and it's interesting that she chooses the narcissus flower um through this through this grandiose kind of kind of messianic you caught that right you caught yeah. that yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah
1: you caught yes. the flower yeah somehow in this in this grandiose uh messianic um voice that the natural world in all of its wholesomeness and goodness is dependent upon us doing this deep, this underlying work that is what sustains reality itself. It's right.
2: Yeah. It's the mud and the Lotus, right? Okay. So turning to Davis, uh, because her introduction follows straight on, Davis begins her story with a disclosure that she is a survivor of incest. And that speaking with Ellen Bass at a crucial moment was fundamental to her turning a mental health corner. So, they have a very, very close and, um, you know, I would say it looks like complex and bonded relationship. In the conversation that she remembers having with Bass... Bass uses an expression that I think we might be familiar with. So Davis writes, over and over, Ellen repeated those simple phrases. It wasn't your fault. I believe you. Healing is possible. You're going to make it. You're going to be okay. I expressed every doubt I could think of. Then I made up some new ones. I knew other survivors didn't make up this sort of thing, but I was the exception. I'd always been the exception all my life. You can fight it all you want, Laura, she said finally, but the door's been opened and you're in the healing process whether you like it or not. There was a long silence. Then I said, isn't there any way out? The only way out is through, honey. I'm sorry.
1: It's hard to hear the almost perfect uh, repetition of Lawrence Pazder Uh, talking to Michelle and of Michelle saying, I don't want to do this anymore. I had a dream. I got in a car. I drove the fuck away from you and this, this cursed project. Oh, uh, but no, you got to stay with it. There's only, there's only one way through and whether you like it or, I mean, you know, talk about ironic and, and sort of um, re reenactment, right? That whether you like it or not, this is what's happening. Awful. Yeah, unintentionally so, like like, like Unin- really yeah. obliviously so. It's and it's and it's and it
2: maybe one of the things that is saddest to me or most tragic about reading this book, especially, you know, we get to eavesdrop on this very tender conversation between friends, and the thing is, is that once that gets crystallized onto the page as kind of a learning moment that then is to be literally applied to the reader's life, uh, it all changes. Because in the moment in which they're actually taking care of each other, in which Laura's going to Ellen for some help and support, it really doesn't matter what the fuck she says. Like, he's, she's just there and listening, and she's being a good friend. I mean, it it's not that it doesn't matter entirely, but it's like there's a difference between having a private moment with a friend about something that you're really struggling with and then turning it into an object lesson that ends up you know spinning out a thousand
1: workshops well and and the the the, um similarity actually extends further than i realized until right now which is that now these are the co-authors of the book and the co-facilitators of the workshop and essentially there's there's uh one of the co-facilitators and authors has gone through the exact process that is being shared and has has now disclosed their own uh, sexual abuse history childhood sexual abuse history um under the guidance of the mentor slash therapist slash you know writing writing teacher right um it's yeah, it's 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 the, it's a similar. We're in similar territory in terms of a a somewhat exploitive um, dynamic that that is said then to legitimize or validate the claims being made and the and the and the um, methodology being taught. Right.
2: Okay. Now Davis goes on to say something really revealing. Um, she writes. I wanted to write this book for probably the same reasons you are picking it up now. I felt a tremendous amount of pain in my life, and I wanted it to stop. Six months before I approached Ellen about collaborating, I had my first memories of being sexually abused by my grandfather when I was a child. Since that time, my life had fallen apart. My lover was leaving me. I was becoming increasingly estranged from my family. I was sure I was going crazy. I needed to understand what was happening to me. I needed to talk to other women who had been through it. Out of that need, my desire to write this book was born. So I'll return to that after I give a little bit of a rundown of the rest of her um, description. She describes their process for soliciting stories. They placed ads in newspapers. They contacted Bass's workshop participants. They listened to hundreds of stories. In the front matter, they describe receiving 250 stories and working with about 100. Um, But let me come back to Davis's needs in writing this book, because this is how she ends her preface, and there's a lot here. It's been my experience that every time the subject of incest comes up in any kind of personal way, I re experience the terror I felt as a child being abused. It's the same terror I saw in the faces of the women I interviewed when we finally sat down, small talk and tea finished, and I nudged them, my voice gentle, what happened to you? It's the fear I've seen flash across the faces of other women who ask what my work is, and who cannot bear to speak to me once they've heard the answer. It's the terror that has silenced us. This book has been a way for me to break silence, but it has been more than that. It has been a steady source of inspiration and amazement for the past two and a half years. It has taught me that it is possible to take something that hurt me so deeply and turn it around. I hope it teaches you the same. Okay. So Julian, what,
1: what comes to mind here? What are your first thoughts? I mean, it's, it's obviously very, it comes across as very earnest. Um, The fact that they're soliciting all of these stories, they're taking them from their workshop participants, they're putting ads in the newspaper. None of it is, is, um, you know, there's absolutely no process of uh, corroborating or anything like that—that uh, that would probably be seen as um, as uh, disbelief. Yeah. yeah, yeah, as something inappropriate to do. Um,
2: well, and it's inappropriate in the sense that they're not trained as journalists either, right?
1: Well, yeah, yeah. This, this—I'm I'm curious about what your thoughts about the way she describes the dynamic of you know, bringing up the topic and that what, what happens in the faces of people when you bring up the topic.
2: Yeah, I mean, what I read here is a reasonable, earnest layperson's guess at how this all should go. You have a personal experience that is deeply painful and meaningful to you. You go through a recovery process. And part of how that is facilitated through time is by Connecting with others who have shared something similar. And I think Laura Davis is to be commended for being absolutely transparent about how personal this is for her. But I think we have to point out that she is telegraphing at a thousand decibels counter-transference into her work and data and that she is coming with no tools for mitigating its effect on the moment in which she is listening. She is saying, I am, when I hear about this material, I am struck with terror. I feel it fully. Um, Neither of them have given any indication that they'd had any training or education in, in how to interview, take information. It's not journalism. As we said, we're not talking about corroboration and, As we've also said, we're not talking about therapy, so they're not talking about the ethics of bearing witness to disclosures like this. Now, I live around psychotherapists, and my understanding of countertransference is that it happens, it is reasonable, it can be incorporated consciously into the therapeutic relationship, but only if it is recognized. Because if it isn't, the therapy which this isn't with the courage to heal but it is approaching it it's adjacent to it but without an awareness of counter-transference without davis stopping herself in the middle of that conversation and saying you know i am feeling so overwhelmed by what you're telling me that i'm not sure i can hear it very clearly uh without being able to do that the encounter can usually, or it runs the risk of serving the unconscious needs of the therapist. And I think that what my, what I understand is that someone with training, uh, what they do when they realize that the client, the interlocutor is speaking into a territory that charges them up, they have to notice it. They have to notice it so that they can, they can pull back and reassess what their own objectives are because those objectives can easily overcome in a very... Uh, unintentionally narcissistic way the needs of the client.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it actually speaks to the, the, the cultural stereotype that is often sort of uh, mocked or seen as um, you know, ineffective of the therapist who has an emotional distance, who maintains a sense of neutrality how does that make you feel, right? That's sort of the joke And the, oh, oh, how does that make you feel? You're just, you're just gonna sit there and, and, and like, you know have this distance, have this kind of uh, openness to, to just continuing to ask the question and letting it be about the patient. Um, that instead of that, you have this merger, you have this intense emotional resonance. And, and that in the moment, that actually does feel more powerful. It does feel more connected but it's actually it's actually doing a disservice, and not only would the trained therapist be able to recognize, oh, my countertransference is really up right now. I need to be careful, and to be aware, I need to be, I need to maintain a kind of reflective, um, a curiosity about how to how to not let this spill over. But in supervision, then there would be an opportunity to unpack that and say, wow, this you really feel connected to this particular patient. Um
2: yeah and not just and let's just let's just be clear about supervision this is not supervision would be hours per week for years on end mm-hmm. uh speaking with a senior advisor in intimate detail about how you as the therapist encountered a particular client and what came up for you what problems you had what confusions you had how you may not have seen them clearly or not yeah as this is not this is like this is not the fucking norm. around yeah yes. it's not screwing around it's 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 hours at a time of careful yeah. examination of how you're actually responding to the person you're supposed to
1: be supporting and just to underline it even further it's the norm it's yeah. to be expected and it's the way that the therapist matures and and grows and becomes better at their job is by recognizing that this parallel process is going on the whole time. Yes, and so let's t- let's tend to it and make and make it conscious.
2: Yeah. Now, listen, I do want to say that I do not know enough about the contemporary history of psychotherapy or its culture to know whether or not uh, all you know what I'm describing ends up being an idealization in, in 1988 dollars. Right. Um. I don't know what the rate of inflation. <laughs> Has been with regard to you know psychotherapy smarts or the the you know it's quite possible that that um, part of the reason that this book is so successful is that um, you know there's a lot of shitty psychotherapy out there still I mean there still is uh, but certainly this is before uh, a number of waves of uh, regulation and licensing takes place.
1: That's right, and it's actually noteworthy that that uh, Ellen Bass references Carl Rogers so early because one of the thing Carl Rogers is the humanistic. A psychologist and he's famous for the idea of unconditional positive regard and for actually starting to break some of the uh less warm qualities of of psychoanalysis maybe in ways that were somewhat beneficial right but maybe in other ways that that opened the door to a certain amount of transference and countertransference being um, on having having less guardrails
2: right so I mean I recognize the 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 spot they're in because I have. I have had a version of this counter-transference problem as a journalist. I'm a cult survivor, and I start doing journalism on cults motivated by blind rage. Uh, And so the first pieces I do are, you know, by the seat of my pants, they're posted on that bullshit site, Elephant Journal, no editorial support. Uh, And it takes me like, you know, a number of years to realize I have to slow down. I have to learn how to really fact check. I have to have my angles validated or challenged by experienced editors. Uh, And, you know, here we are uh, publishing a 300 page book with 500 plus footnotes and a lawyer combing through every single line, asking us very particular questions about, can, can you be really sure about the intentionality of so-and-so? Do you want to hedge that a little bit? Uh, and so the psychotherapy version of that discipline, as I've said, is is hundreds of hours of, of practice supervision, uh, note-taking. As you said, parallel note-taking. You know, like on one side of the page, what did the client feel and say, Um, you know, safety checks, safety plans. And then on the other side of the page, how was I feeling and managing those feelings? So, Davis does update her foreword in 2008 for the 20th anniversary edition. She expresses a mellowing of the passion for justice that drove her. She explains that she doesn't primarily identify as a child sexual abuse survivor at this point. And she implies that this is because the book, which has impacted millions, this is where her, I think, her, her note on on how many copies might have been sold has helped her on her journey she does mention going through the book sentence by sentence but she doesn't mention corrections or errata and that's really important because as we'll see uh, there is a controversy over their inclusion of satanic ritual abuse content in the first editions Okay, so we've covered a lot so far and we've hardly touched the body of the text yet. So let's finish this part with just the opening. Of Chapter 1, which provides good coverage of basic uh, child sexual abuse statistics, uh, but then a standard list for identifying forms of abuse, but there's something in that list that kind of sticks out and it's important to note. So the list says, when you were a young child or teenager, were you touched in sexual areas, shown sexual movies, or forced to listen to sexual talk? made to pose for seductive or sexual photographs, subjected to unnecessary medical treatments, forced to perform oral sex on an adult or sibling, raped or otherwise penetrated, fondled, kissed, or held in a way that made you uncomfortable, forced to take part in ritualized abuse in which you were physically or sexually tortured, made to watch sexual acts or look at sexual parts, bathed in a way that felt intrusive to you, objectified and ridiculed about your body, Encouraged or goaded into sex you didn't really want. Told all you were good for was sex. Involved in child prostitution or pornography. So, there's one that stands out there.
1: Did you spot it? Yikes. Just a little ritual abuse and torture right there in the midst of this list of everything else. Right. So,
2: that's the first hint we get of where this book might be going in terms of what it's going to allow into the Imaginarium. Now, at the bottom of that page, there's a very important footnote, and it might sound familiar. So the footnote reads, between 500,000 and 1 million children are involved in prostitution and pornography in this country, this would be the US, a high percentage of them are victims of incest. C. Sex Work, Writings by Women in the Industry, edited by Frédéric Delacoste and Priscilla Alexander, published by Kleiss Press in Pittsburgh, 1987. Okay, does that figure ring a bell for you, uh, Julian?
1: Yeah, I mean, it has echoes of what we were hearing during uh, during the Save the Children period in 2020.
2: Yeah, they use the figure 800,000. So between 500,000 and a million, we kind of, it falls right in the middle, is the figure that ended up getting boosted by the Save the Children meme, by Pastel Q. By Pastel Q, by the Underground Railroad, uh, and the QAnon summer of 2020. The real number is somewhere between fifteen and 50,000 women and children in the U.S. The, the number 800,000 is a misinterpretation of uh, the, the, the number of, of children who are reported missing if they are missing for 20 minutes because they went down the street and they, they didn't check in with their parents. Now, to their credit... Uh, bass and davis remove this footnote and the citation from their 2008 edition however no correction is offered it's just removed
1: it's i mean it's like i want to i want to just you know look into their eyes and say why when you say something like that and then you later realize that it's not true and you take it out is it that is it that any admission that some aspect of what you what you have put in this book is not true calls everything into question, and so you're, you're too scared to do that?
2: That's a really important point, isn't it? Because yeah. if, you're, if your ideological premise is that we're going to believe everything that these people tell us, and we're going to publish it not as if they are creative writing exercises, but as if they are memories that you know, would be actionable, yeah. then yeah, how would you, admi- what would you do to admit, mis- what would it mean to admit a mistake in your, in your facticity?
1: Well, and in this case, you'd be saying, hey, it turns out that we may have overestimated the prevalence of this thing that we're, that we're promoting.
2: Yeah, you can't do uh, that though. You can't do exactly, that. Exactly. If- you
1: can't do that. And again, it, it draws the sharp distinction between in, in a, in a more In a better regulated, uh, more kind of uh, how would we say it? Science informed, uh, open discourse. You actually gain legitimacy by correct, right? In in journalistic terms, you gain legitimacy by saying, "Oh, our bad. We screwed up. We own it. We were wrong about this. We need to look at how it impacts everything else that we're saying."
2: Exactly. And if they actually issue a correction, (coughs) pardon me, they lose uh, legitimacy. Yeah. Because it's worse than that because they would be compromising the legitimacy of the people whose stories they published.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
2: Which is an awful bind to be
1: in actually. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, you can, you can say, uh, we were off by a by a by a decimal point in terms of our <laughs> right. our speculation about how widespread this is. That in no way impacts the veracity of the stories that we've received from from all of these other people. You know, this, or is, this their, is their story. Or their, or their meanings or their importance. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Right. Um it it does seem like this satanic panic hangover of asserting inflated numbers and baseless statistics that that then paints a picture of this rampant epidemic that's going on in in the shadowy corners of the world and and it's really horrific but it's also really very commonplace to me it's it's a it, it even though the subject matter is totally different the psychology or the or the the style is similar to other panics, like there's like there's commies under every bed, you know, um, or how reefer madness is going to destroy ordinary teenagers and turn them into a life of crime overnight from just taking one puff on a joint. It's a, it's a similar flavor to me,
2: right? Let's pause there uh, because I think uh, we have a good hint of where this is going, um, and when we pick it up again, we can talk about how they kind of encourage readers to monitor their feelings as they read the book and that becomes uh, a very important sort of pillar in how they describe the function of recovering memory thanks julian see you next time